Hey Evie, welcome to Sup Date, but you're not normally here. No, I don't usually join you for Sup Dates. You're usually speaking to other Team DSCs about their subject matter specialisations. But something's burning a hole in your pocket? Something's keeping you up at night? It is. It's DSC's annual NDIS conference. So tell us about it. So we have done online conferences for the last couple of years, as many of you will know who joined us. And this year we're going online again, plus face-to-face. We're doing a hybrid event. It's the biggest, most ambitious thing we've ever planned. So the last two conferences we did, Evie, 2021 and 2022, were the biggest thing in the sector, over 1,700, 1,800 people at each one. And that wasn't big enough for you? (laughs) That was plenty big enough for me, but here we go. We're going bigger anyway. Yeah. So it's a pretty important time in NDIS history, which oh, is... Oh, wow. Yeah, the 10-year review, the Royal Commission's reporting. Um, Bill Shorten wants to make a name for himself. It's going to be big. So we'll be exploring all of that, plus all of the NDIS provider operational challenges mm-hmm. and solutions that people have been finding. It's a jam-packed agenda, but a good one. Yeah, some great speakers and some more to come, some more to be announced. So if people want to go, Evie then you can register on our website and you'll also be hearing from quite a few of our guests over the next few months as we bring some of them onto the podcast to give you a little taste of what's coming up. Okay, so now over to the real reason we're here, this update with Rob Woolley and see you next time, Evie. Bye. Welcome to Subdate. Welcome, Rob Woolley. Thanks, Roland. For those of you that don't know, Rob, Rob's an all-rounder and he's been with DSC for quite a while. I saw Rob speak at a conference at the very beginnings of the NDIS and hung around, I wasn't planning to, at lunchtime and nabbed him as he got off the stage and said, you've got to come and work with us. You remember that, Rob? I do remember that. Yeah, that was Byron Bay a lot of years ago. And then we got you down to Melbourne and said, um, you know, I remember you catching an Uber on a hot day to Albert Park and um, us convincing you that it was a good thing to come do some work with us. Yeah. And the rest is history, Roland. And, and it's a bit of history, isn't it? Do you remember what year that would have been? That would have been 2016 uh, because my middle child was very young at that point. So I think she was only about three months old when I got on that flight down to Melbourne. And since then, all kinds of things have changed. One of the things that was most interesting about you at the conference was that you were running uh, a provider and particularly a personal care provider and all kinds of things provider and you have this wonderfully cynical, positive view of the NDIS. Has that changed? Um, It's been hard not to be cynical about the way the scheme has kind of rolled out and the way that um, things are living, things are for for providers right now. But I guess the hopeful part of that cynicism is that it really has changed lives and that if we look what the disability sector was like before the NDIS compared to what it's like now, it's like chalk and cheese. So there's probably still a bit of both cynicism and hope in there. And as I remember, you were living in the ACT and you still were, and it's not that big a place, but you had pretty much managed to piss off almost every senior NDIS person at that stage, hadn't you? <laughs> I had, but that was a long time ago, Roland. Everyone's changed since then. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping a lower profile. But let's talk about your subject matter specialisation, which is group services or even groups. And what what is groups in this day and age? So I think this day and age is a really good way of putting it because 
uh, right now, group services in the NDIS encompass some of those really traditional day programs um, that have their roots back in the 70s and 80s. But then also there's therapy focused groups, um, there's psychosocial recovery focused groups where you know recovery and support is really embedded in groups of other people and in coming together as a community. Um, and there's lots of organizations doing creative things around employment supports and things like that as well. So group services, there's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot of history. There's no getting around it. Um, and there's a lot of change in it at the moment. Um, we're probably talking about a couple of billion dollars worth of services in the NDIS at the moment. And can we stay right in the helicopter for a little while, Rob, with the concept of groups? Because I'm old enough to have been around when the concept of carers was invented. Carers have been around forever. But the concept where government names this group of people and says this group of people do this stuff, and it never made a lot of sense to me because carers are mothers, fathers, neighbours, sisters, brothers, all kinds of people. And there are also lots of other people. But groups seems to me, you know, haven't we created this other um, grouping of thing that really doesn't make a lot of sense for the numbers and different types of things that sit underneath it? I think there's no doubt in the history of, of where group services, and I guess the old language is day programs as well that some people still use, like the history of, of those services and those programs were about a safe place to go when carers weren't around, when family members weren't around in the middle of the day. Um, but But it's 2022, so like a lot of those services still have their history and those origins, but a lot don't as well. There's a whole lot of really exciting, interesting, high quality stuff happening that's person-centered, that's aspirational, that's about purpose, that's about activity. It's not just what, you know, we've heard really good, um, you know, advocates and CEOs in the sector talk call distraction therapy, just filling the hours in the day. Um, those, um, those days are gone by and large, but I think you've got a point that there's no discounting the history of where group services were built, which is those those ideas. So you're not being unnecessarily optimistic when you're saying there's whole lots of really good things out there? No, I, I, I don't think I am. And like you said before, seen a lot of the of NDIS from a lot of different perspectives. And I don't see group services as any different to other service deliveries. You know, sometimes group service providers get a bad rap from other parts of the of the sector. But actually, there's fantastic stuff happening in other service types, just as there is in group services. And there's not so great stuff happening in other service types as well. Group services and day programs are really no different. Um, the only big difference is um, the changes that are going on at the moment and then COVID, of course, over the last few years. So tell me in barbecue speak, what is group services? If someone came up and said, what, what is it, Rob? And they're not that interested. <laughs> If they're not that interested, they probably shouldn't be asking. I suppose group services are where um, NDIS services are delivered with groups of participants. So it might be one worker to two participants in a relatively small group. It might be three, four, five, six, even more participants. But really, group services are where groups of participants come together to access supports in a group setting um, because sometimes through choice and control, sometimes because it's just the best way to access that particular support that they want, um, sometimes because of a specialist set of skills that a worker or an employee might have. But really, it's bringing people together in a group to do those activities. So I can feel advocacy ears burning all over Australia as you talk, Rob, about why do we need to put people in groups? 
we can't get away from the fact that there was a period in our sector's history where people were put into groups whether they wanted to or not um and i hope that we've moved on from that time and i think i'm confident that we have moved on from that time but i suppose the bottom line is that some people prefer to do activities in a group sometimes i like to ride my bike on my own sometimes i like to ride my bike in a group um and that there are certain things activities skill development things groups um that fit better where there are multiple participants um around or multiple participants being supported in one setting so i do really think we've come past the phase of our history as a sector where groups were um, something that wasn't a choice for people and was almost like a necessary evil and that actually it is a choice for most participants at the moment. Cool, great answer. When COVID first broke out, Rob, I remember the way um, group programs suffered, I'm going to keep using that language, it, they just couldn't work anymore and I imagined as, as COVID kept going, I got more distant from what was actually happening on the ground. Did it result in permanent change in group programs? What happened? It's really difficult to to see, I think, whether it resulted in permanent change because, you know, all of the things that we talked about with pivoting and innovating in, you know, this time of extreme stress um, was exactly that. It was a time of extreme stress. And so I think it's really hard to innovate in those times and to have any innovation stick um, in times like that, because you're just trying to survive nine times out of 10 organizations are just trying to get through to the next day. So I think in true, in reality, lots of providers have changed and they do have, you know, other strings to their bow or they have different ways of doing things or they have different, you know, options or tricks up their sleeve. But for group services, particularly what an absolute nightmare couple of years it's been. Um, so if you think about, it's been hard for every NDIS service provider over COVID over the last two and a bit years. Um, I think group services have had it so hard because if you think about what everybody in the country couldn't do during COVID across different stages of restrictions, that was to come together in groups. Um, and that's exactly what group service providers do and have been doing for so long. That's their business. That's their expertise. Mm -hmm. So I think lots of providers did change and did pivot and have changed the way that they do things. Um, but that shouldn't be that shouldn't erase the pain and the trauma and the stress of just getting through from day to day over that period for group services. So is it true, let's go on to some of the um, more technical parts of, of groups, that you have um, deep connections into the NDIA because every time that you would run a series of workshops or information sessions about group pricing and the changes to group pricing and the numbers started dropping off, they would suddenly change the arrangements so that you could boost the numbers again. <gasps> Uh, that would be lovely. What a great way to live. <laughs> Drop something into a workshop, wait a week and then wait for the NDIA to, to change something. But uh, no, I didn't and I didn't and don't have deep connections into the NDIA. That's just the way the NDIA has worked this transition <laughs> over the past two and a bit years is um, is stop, start. Yes, we're going to go to the new pricing model. Oh, no, we're not going to go to the new pricing model. Oh, you get a year extension. Oh, but you don't get a year extension. These <laughs> Sorry, other guys get a year extension. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that's just the way that it's been over the past two years. And so throw in for group service providers, throw in COVID, throw in false starts, flip-flops, extensions, yes, no, maybe next year. Um, and it's not hard to see why everyone is so tired and so stressed. 
So what time is it now and what is the current um, approach? So the current approach is that the deadline the NDIA has set for group service providers to move over to the new pricing model, um, which is the end of June 2023, that's a firm deadline. So as far as we are aware, and we are more sure than we've ever been over the last few years, that deadline is coming and that's happening. So those providers that have been hoping it's not going to happen, I think your luck has run out, it's going to happen. The agency language is that a significant number of providers have moved over to the new pricing model. Um, but actually, the estimates that we've got estimate that about 70% of the market is still using ratios, still using the transitional pricing. So that's a lot of services that have got to move over before the 30th of June. Um, and a really quick summary of the new pricing model, because we haven't got time to break it down in, in a lot of detail, is that at the moment, ratio pricing is, uh, you build a ratio pricing and that's pretty much it. There's not really much maths to do. There's not really any complexity to it. Um, you build a ratio and that's essentially it as a provider. So let's just unpack it for a tick. A ratio is X number of staff members to X number of group participants equals X amount of dollars. Exactly. No? Oh, I thought you were gonna say no, sorry. So a ratio is one, support worker to a number of participants. So one to two, one to three, one to four, one to five, something like that. And at the moment, that's really um, for the direct services, that's all that's being built. There's no additional stuff on top of that. There's no breaking that down. The provider builds yeah. a ratio and that's basically it. Yep. The new pricing model, the divided or apportioned pricing model is a lot more complicated. So what that requires providers to do is to break down what they're actually delivering into face-to-face -face supports, so direct services, and then uh, non-face-to-face -face supports, so other stuff that the provider might do to support the person while they're not there, and then some then capital costs as well. Yep. So sorry, I, I interrupted, but face-to-face, -face, the back of house and capital sort of stuff? Yeah, centre capital costs as, a, as an amount to reflect some of those capital costs. And so yeah. um, it does get a whole lot more complicated because all of the some of those things need to be divided between participants as well. So not necessarily divided equally like ratios might be, but can be divided in other ways, can be apportioned in other ways. So we've got a very different billing and service design system from just billing a one to three ratio and then forgetting about it. So what do you reckon the intent is? Well, why did they move from ratios to, you don't call it a portion pricing, you give it a more simple name, don't you? I, I've called it a few different things in the past few years. I settle <laughs> more on the portion pricing now, um, maybe through habit. But the, I, I guess one of the things about why they've moved is that, you know, for every provider that that is struggling with this transition or just wants to stick with ratios. Um, I think it is important to highlight that ratios aren't perfect. You know, they hide a whole lot of things, both in terms of the services that people require, but what the provider is actually delivering as well, because there's no opportunity to build things on top of, of a ratio. And so um, it's not that we're moving from something perfect to something imperfect or something a bit dodgy. Um, the benefits of the new pricing model are really about transparency. So transparency for the participant and family to see exactly where their NDIS dollars are going, but also uh, the opportunity for providers to say, 
hey, we deliver a fantastic service. We back ourselves that we deliver the best group service in this particular area in town. And to do that, we do this face-to-face -face work and we do this non-face-to-face -face work and we build this center capital cost. And um, this new pricing model gives providers the chance to actually build that rather than deliver it, but not bill it, which they probably were doing in the ratio model. So let's juice up this already racy podcast, Rob, with my conspiracy theory, which I floated with you a couple of years ago. I don't think you've ever got back to me on it. Was that programs of support were a thin end, thin edge of the wedge of creating output-based funding for groups and all kinds of things. And so my conspiracy theory goes like this. Turn um, long-term funding into short-term funding create short-term funding that has defined outputs at the end of it and then make everything like that and screw programs down. But I think it hasn't played out that way, has it? It hasn't really played out that way. And that's not to say that your conspiracy theory won't come to fruition, although I don't think it will. So I suppose I am saying that. So there's a couple of caveats, I suppose, about why the agency hasn't gone down that, that line. One is that um, programs of support aren't for every service so not every support type can use a program of support at the moment it's only for group really for group based services which isn't the whole sector isn't the whole um, service delivery market um, the other is that um, the way that programs of support are set up at the moment is that yes they are time bound so a maximum of 12 weeks so that short-term arrangement that you were talking about but they are not compulsory and the NDIA has not come out and said programs of support are compulsory. They've hinted at it in a few different documents and a few different guides that they've put out across different service types, but they've not come out and said programs of support are where the future is. And if anything, actually, they've hinted more recently that they're not going to push providers and participants into programs of support. Nor would you if you were hatching a good conspiracy, but keep going. <laughs> and so... Maybe there will be a change in the program of support arrangements in the future. If anything, my counter conspiracy theory is that actually program to support time period will be extended. We'll see longer uh, periods of uh, longer programs of support or a longer time period that providers can use a program of support model, which would push it out of that really short term element. But I think it's not a bad thing that um short-term programs and services are bound around a specific outcome because if we think about those really historical ideas of day programs and group services of just somewhere to be somewhere to while away the time somewhere to eat up the hours one of the antidotes to that is to say well while you're here we're going to work on this outcome or this achievement or this activity we, yeah, with something has to happen. So I don't think programs of support are necessarily skewed in favor of providers entirely. There are some good things for providers, but I think they offer participants a chance to get more value and to, to drive accountability from providers as well. So let's move on to providers and what's going on for them because there's lots of change. What does it all mean? It means... Well, you just said it there. It means more change. Um, and uh, I feel for providers who are coming, group service providers who are coming out the back end of COVID into this change, because this is a significant change. Um, really, this move to a new pricing model is a complete rethink of how group services are built 
and recorded and designed and staffed and monitored for quality and then ultimately build as well. So it really is a front to back rethink and redesign of how group services are delivered. And so it's a challenge, but it's also a fantastic opportunity as well. So a great opportunity for providers to leave that legacy of the old style traditional day programs behind and say, actually, we back ourselves. We believe we deliver in really high quality services and our the way that we are billing our pricing model is going to reflect that in a transparent way. So lots of change, but an opportunity to specialize and really deliver high quality creative services as well. And no one, I suppose no one's saying this change is going to be easy, but the bottom line is that it is happening and there are benefits for participants and providers. But a lot of people think it's just a change in billing processes. Yeah. And, and I do think that part of that was the way that the change was presented early on and probably how the, some, some providers who went early and moved over to the pricing model early, how they considered it and viewed it as well. But what we are seeing is providers who are making a real success out of this new pricing model aren't just looking at it as a change to the the billing, a change to the real sharp end. They're looking at it as a wholesale review of what do we deliver? How how do we deliver it? How do we specialize in this? How do we make sure the right workers and the right people are in the right place? How do our quality systems reflect the services that we are delivering? Um, And so I would put the organizations that are just looking at this as a billing change are the ones who are are going to encounter all kinds of problems when transition really comes. So it is a, a complete shift in how services are offered. And can we talk a bit about new entrants, Rob? Because one of the things that bothered me in the early days of the NDIS was we, or at that stage it was me, was getting three or four calls a week from someone saying something along the lines of, I want to send set up a personal care service, an attendant care service, uh, that basic one-on-one service. And it just kept going for years and years and years. And I, you know, after a while, I don't think I ever said it, but I felt like saying, have you, th-? no, I probably did say it. Have you thought about doing something other than just doing, you know, a basic um, attendant care service? What about the programs that, have, have, that people need out there? People require um, support that's more than just a pair of hands that come in and do stuff. And the older um, providers, the ones that were in the sector, get that. But are we finally starting to see some new entrants coming in and saying, it's not just about one-to-one support. It's not just about um, platform models of workers that come into your house based on an internet um, thing, but actually providing programs? I think we are, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say they're coming from the place we thought they were going to. So um, what we are seeing quite a lot of is... Uh, workers who have been in group services doing a good job for as an employee in group services um, set out go out on their own and those are the ones who are setting up as uh, independent and sole trader support workers and then they are offering groups so if you think about it really you, you so don't... I just had to jump in you've got individual support workers going out starting to run small group programs Absolutely. And we're seeing that more and more, and it's becoming more and more of a pain point for traditional group service providers, um, because the think about the investment that a provider might put into a worker, bringing a worker on, connecting them with groups, supporting them in their ongoing development. And then that worker goes, um, okay, I'm going to go out on my own now. So in those examples you gave of 
the independent worker doing say personal care or one-to-one supports in a person's home you know they might um uh pinch or take or hoover up three or four participants from that traditional provider well uh, someone setting up a group might take six seven eight nine ten participants from that bigger group provider so and two or three of their mates the best staff, and two or I three think. workers absolutely uh, um so best and staff so, and yep well so it's happening more and more. And if you think about what a modern group service looks like, you don't necessarily need a center. You don't necessarily need a building. You don't necessarily need a, a room necessarily. You can do a lot of this stuff in the community. So as you a do necessarily new... need participants and where are you going to get them from? Um, oh, well, you... I hate to think what your answer is going to be. Uh, well, I think if you're offering interesting groups that offer things that are purposeful and aspirational and offer real meaning, meaningful activities, I'm not sure it would be that hard. And in fact, I don't think it is that hard to find groups of participants that want to come together and do that. And or steal them from your employer. Or take them from your, from your previous, um, from your previous employer. Um, but the thing that I often think about is, um, let's say challenge for providers. But actually, if you think about the the list of challenges for providers, that one is, in my opinion, on the end of more internal, right? It's within your sphere of control. You can talk to workers, you can support them more, you can find them interesting things to do, you can do job redesign. So they're not sat in front of a computer all day, they're doing things that they really want to do. If you think of all the other challenges that providers might face, interacting with the commission, interacting with the NDIA, getting on top of pricing, you know, workers' comp claims, this, that, and the other, all of that stuff is enormous. What does all this mean for participants, Rob? So what this means for participants is really a couple of things. One is more transparency. So on an invoice in the new pricing model, a participant can see I've was billed this amount for my direct services. I was billed this amount for center capital cost. I was billed this amount for non face to face. And those things are negotiable. Participants can go back and forth and say, I want you to do more of this non face to face and less of this non face to face. So more transparency, more control. What it also means is that um, organizations are having to present invoices that are now three, four, five, six pages long, because all of that stuff has to be itemized on the bill and on the invoice. So I think it means participants are more connected and more involved in the the services that they're accessing. But what it also means probably is that participants are going to need a bit of support to understand what the difference is between the old pricing model, the ratios, and the new pricing model. Because otherwise, I think it's really easy to get bamboozled with it all. Where can they go to get that information? Do you know? Well, um, in theory, they should be able to go to the NDIA or a planner or an LAC. In practice, it's really falling down to organizations to give that information, which is something that has been a constant source of frustration from providers that we've supported and that we talk to is that providers are being asked to make this change to the new pricing model and also, also to explain it to participants who are essentially their customers. So we have seen commitments from the NDIA over the last few years to produce guidelines and information and things like that for participants. What that's going to look like in practice, we're not really sure. The safer bet is to assume that part providers will need to give this information. One of the things that's um, often bothered me about some providers is that they don't understand the role 
that frontline workers play in their in their own organisations. And Natasha, your colleague at DSC, who works in these area, who works in this area, has also talked about frontline workers feeling like um, the pinball in a pinball machine. Does that make sense to you? It makes a hundred percent sense. And so Natasha is so well connected to to what re- the real issues are for organisations doing this transition is that that's the perfect way to describe it. So as a work, if you think about an organization feels like they've been messed around over the last few years with start, stop, extension here, extension there. And so workers are just further down in the chain nine times out of 10. And so workers have been told, okay, we're going to move to this. We're going to move to that. We're not going to do it now. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. Oh, we're not going to do it this way. We're going to do it that way. Um, and don't forget frontline workers are also the ones who are taking the questions from participants and family members, trying to explain them, trying to work out what it means for their own job and their own role, as well as trying to support all of this stuff happening in an organization. So we know, Roland, that the the real key to getting so much right as a provider is getting it right with frontline workers. So talking to frontline workers, actually hearing what they have to say, acting on the concerns that they have, supporting them. Um, All of that is times 10 at the moment for frontline workers and group services because there's so much change. And the last two years have been so traumatic and turbulent for them as well. I get that. And I also want to just do a shout out for managers because I remember early days of the NDIS, we worked with one organization. It was actually in day programs. And their manager had done the thing of um, said, this change is coming. Then the NDIA had changed it and then come back to staff and said, this change is coming and then changed it. And then staff stopped, stopped believing in that manager. So the manager stopped communicating with staff because they just said so many things that were wrong. It was not their fault. So it must be um, freaking impossible for managers as well. Exactly right. And if you think managers, you know, are really, they're doing, they're supporting the front line to do frontline stuff. And then they're also often having to manage up as well, you know, with a board that wants a clear answer to a question for that there isn't a clear answer for, or with a finance manager who wants to really nail down, okay, how are we going to claim this cost back? Or with a CEO who just sees group services as a filter or a funnel into a, a SIL service or a therapy service right. or something like that. So that's fairly common as well. And I guess that's one of the other good things about the new pricing model is the more transparency really allows organizations to say, hey, actually this group service is going to stand on its own um, because we can see more transparently you know, the service that we're delivering, what it's costing us and the value that it's bringing. So we're running out of time, Rob, but I know I can put you on the spot and ask you to sum it up a bit for us. So there's significant change coming. And one of the most important things is that it's coming. So let's try and forget all of the turbulence of the last few years, all of the COVID turbulence, all of the confusion about when this pricing model is coming, is coming because it is coming uh, end of June 2023. And so... It's a significant change that is coming as well. It's not just a change to billing processes. So it's a change from front to back of your organization. So thinking about service design, thinking about um, frontline worker job design, thinking about engaging and consulting with participants, thinking about involving families, thinking about quality, all of that stuff. The best thing that you can do is to talk, talk, talk to all of those groups, all of those people. and to talk to any providers that you know that are already using this pricing model as well. So um, capacity building providers didn't get all of these extensions. They've been using the group, the new pricing model, the apportion pricing model, 
since July 2020. So if you know any group capacity building group providers, go and buy them a coffee and try and work out how they've done this process and what worked and what didn't. Um, ADEs as well have been using this pricing model for a while. The old what used to be called ADEs. And so go and hit up a local ADE that you're friendly with to work out how it works for them. And then when you've done all of that learning, that's the time to sit down and work out what the change is going to mean for your organization. Because you can't put the cart before the horse and work out what the change is going to look like before you really understand the change. Sensational, Rob. That's a really good update on group services. I really appreciate your time. And for people that have missed it, we've done a previous update on SDA, the bricks and mortar of housing through the NDIS. And we've also done one on the support side of housing, home and living in the NDIS. So this is our third update, but if you've missed the other two, they're really worth a listen as well. And they're um, really quite going off in terms of listenership. So, but thank you for your time today, Rob. It's been fabulous. Thanks, Roland. Thanks for having me.